Los Angeles. In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest books or topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I talk about the book from this past week, the book of the week for this week is The Mask of Masculinity by Lewis House. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. H-O-W-E-S. The Mask of Masculinity, How Men Can Embrace Vulnerability, Create Strong Relationships, and Live Their Fullest Lives. Uh, so looking forward to reading that this week and sharing it with you next week. This book actually was a gift on the cruise that I did in March um, from uh, someone who's there. Layla, thank you so much for this book. I'm finally uh, getting to put it on the list to have it for this week. So The Mask of Masculinity. But let's come back to the book for this week that I'll talk about tonight, and it is Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect by Matthew Lieberman, who is a professor here very close to our studios at UCLA. And this was a really fascinating book uh, that I really enjoyed and highly recommend anyone to read this book, Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. And so as that subtitle implies, he talks about how in studying the brain, he does a lot of neuroscience research and in the book describes and discusses a lot of neuroscience research. We see that so much of the brain is dedicated to social things, to thinking about social things, figuring out social things, understanding ourselves, understanding ourselves in the environment. And there is a lot that seems to be dedicated to it. And sometimes when people think about how human beings have such big brains, we think, well, we have such big brains so that we can do things like abstract reasoning and we can uh, have inventions and create things and come up with these ideas. And we usually think of that as being the reason for our big brains. But as he puts it, it seems like a very strong argument could be made that actually our brains are bigger because of the need to be more social or to make us better at being social. And that it's actually that that makes our brains bigger than those of other animals. And when we say bigger, we mean uh, compared to our body size. And we definitely have the biggest brains when it comes to that. So it's a very interesting argument. And when he makes it and the, the evidence he provides, it does seem to make sense. And it just makes sense when you do think about it that being social is essential for our survival. Of course, even more so in our for our ancestors and hunter-gatherer societies or even extant hunter-gatherer societies, but even still that we do need each other. We need to be able to work together to cooperate in order to really 
survive. And so it would make sense that evolution would favor us to be more social. Uh, so it's interesting. He starts off the book talking about social pain and how there's a few things about it that can seem interesting. One is that we might think that it's kind of a negative thing or almost like a mistake that was made by evolution. So he shares the very uh, kind of sad but touching story of his own grandparents who were very much in love. But then when his grandfather passed away, his grandma was really brokenhearted for the rest of her life and in a way uh, almost you can say died of a broken heart or lived the rest of her life with the pains of a broken heart. And when you hear that, you think, you know, this is really bad. Why would we feel this way? It seems like a mistake or something bad in our uh, brain machinery to feel that. Uh, but as he puts it, this is actually not at all the case. It actually is a good thing. And another thing he points out is that when we hear that someone was sad for the rest of their life or was experiencing social or emotional pain, we see it very differently from if they were to experience physical pain or a physical illness. And listeners to my show know that that's a very big goal of mine, is that we need to equate physical and mental illness and physical and mental pain, something that we don't do. And actually, in my opinion, when you really look at it, when we try to differentiate these things, we see that there really isn't a difference. They're all part of the same thing, something that I might get into as I further discuss the book. But really trying to separate the physical and the emotional is difficult when we consider that all of our feelings have a physical part to them too. But physical uh, pain, we think of it as very real, but social pain also is very real. And as he points out, if you ask most people what's the most painful memory of your life, Almost everyone is going to talk about a broken heart rather than a broken leg, experiencing some kind of pain of rejection or loss, uh, embarrassment. That's more than likely going to be someone's worst memory or most painful memory rather than some type of physical pain. So we realize that in a lot of ways we can see that emotional and social pain is very significant, but still we judge it differently. And I always mention this when I talk about things like practical jokes, where people will say, oh, well, the person wasn't hurt, so it doesn't matter. And really what they mean is the person wasn't physically hurt, because we equate that as actual pain and damage and hurt. But if they were emotionally crushed or scared or terrified, or maybe even potentially traumatized, we don't really see that as the same thing. So unfortunately, we still have a long ways to go of recognizing the significance of emotional and social pain. Um, but he makes some good arguments in the book for that. So why would we have social pain? As I was saying before, it could seem like almost a mistake for us to feel the way that we do when we lose someone, if we go through a breakup or we have some kind of pain. It could seem like a mistake of sorts. But as we understand pain in general, whether we're talking about what you know, we usually think of as physical pain, we realize that it does have a purpose, even though... It's uncomfortable and we don't like it when we experience it. It serves to signal that something is wrong. And to one, do something to prevent the pain to begin with. But secondly, when you experience the pain, to do something about it. And actually, some people are born where they don't feel pain. And they have a very low chance of surviving very long in life because they don't recognize if they are hurting themselves in some ways or if they have hunger or some kind of need that creates a pain inside, they have a hard time recognizing it. So although we think of pain as this negative thing, 
we know that it's actually to signal to us that something is wrong and we need to make a change. And so when it comes to social pain, it, it serves a similar function. We need to be social. And he talks about how social is actually as much of a need as things like food and water, because we really do need other people to survive, both as adults, but especially as children. And he talks about how human babies are born very altricial or very helpless. When you think about us compared to other animals in the animal kingdom, a lot of them can walk and take care of themselves in some ways uh, within a few days or maybe even the day that they're born. But you look at humans and really a human child can't take care of themselves for almost several years, really, um, which shows that we are born very helpless. And the reason for that is that we do have those very big brains that I was talking about before. And also because we walk on two legs, because we're bipedal, we have the shape of our pelvis is in a way that childbirth would be very hard if the head was any bigger when it came out. And so basically what we were left with was that babies or humans have to develop a lot of their brain or a good portion of it after birth. They're not done developing. They can develop essentially as much as they can, but a lot of it has to come after birth. And because of that, we need others to survive. We need our parents to not just kind of want to take care of us, but to care so much about taking care of us, to feel so much distress if their baby is crying, to respond to that cry, to feel pain from the separation of not being with the child. They have to feel that very strongly. And the baby has to feel that too, to make those distress cries, to say, I need help, I need things. And that mutuality creates something where then the child can receive the care it needs to survive. So both the child expresses the needs and feels pain from separation. And in a way, so does the parent feels the pain of separation and also feels pain from seeing the child in pain. And on top of that, feels good when they take care of the child. And even they found, and he shares a lot of neuroscience research throughout the book, where we see that there are two different um, parts of the brain, or the brain feels good both when being taken care of and taking care of someone else, both. We feel good doing both of those things. And so it makes sense that we um, have this social pain to prevent disconnection, to prevent us from not getting what we need, which is to have someone care for us and to have people around. So we see that being social is very much part of being human. It's not that we're animals that are also social, but we are really social beings. Uh, he also shares other research that points to interesting things about how the brain works or how we think or feel about things. He has an interesting titled uh, chapter called Fairness Tastes Like Chocolate. And he shares research that finds that um, when people were presented with these tasks where they had to split money, when people did it in a fair way, people experience activation in the brain's primary reward center. And that's why he calls it fairness tastes like chocolate because chocolate would also activate this same system. But so fairness feels that good to us. And this is why sometimes economists can be puzzled when they do things like prisoner's dilemmas or these tasks where people are asked to split money, where people sometimes take less money either to punish the other person or they take less money themselves to make things more fair 
from an economic self-interest standpoint where you're supposed to maximize what you can get, it doesn't quite make sense. It can come off as irrational. But when you recognize that human beings value fairness so much because of this social fabric that we have, it can make more sense that it feels that good. He gets into um, other aspects of uh, our social life and how we tend to minimize the significance of the social. And so he says how it's puzzling how we really know we're social and at some level we can all accept that, but we tend to not apply this in a lot of areas of life. So for example, he talks about in the workplace. And usually when we think of the workplace, people think of work as the primary goal and the social is kind of secondary and maybe it's there and people kind of enjoy it and you might have a little bit of fun here and there, but it's not considered really essential. But what the research finds is that that's not the case, that actually the social aspect is so important to predict things like productivity and how dedicated and committed people are to their work, how hard they work, turnover, and all those kinds of things are very much predicted by the social uh, aspect of a workplace. So although we tend to think of social as just a secondary part or some icing on the cake, we see that it actually is the cake itself. It is a big part of what matters. Just like when we look at medical care, when doctors would be taught about bedside manner, it would kind of be thought of as, okay, this is kind of nice to do this to make you know, the patient feel good, or it's just a kind of sweet thing to do, but it doesn't really matter, or it's not part of the care. But then more and more research was showing that the way that the doctor interacts with the patient can actually have effects on the health outcomes, how well the patient is going to do, how quick they're going to recover, are they going to survive? These things are affected by the interactions, by the way they feel with their doctor. So again, another way that we see that the physical and emotional are so interconnected and intertwined and can be hard to separate. Another area in the workplace where we see that the social is not given its due is when people select managers. Usually when it comes time to pick a manager, people pick the person who's the best technically at what they're doing. So if you're in an engineering firm and it's time to pick a manager amongst the engineers, they usually pick the person who's the best engineer, who's the most uh, technically advanced or skilled engineer to then be the manager, even though oftentimes are really the biggest part of being a manager is much more social than intellectual. People who have to manage a group of, let's say, engineers, what's more important for them is to be able to handle the social aspects of what's going on, being able to communicate, to do things like he talks about mind reading. And it's not literally mind reading, but the ways that we all mind read by being able to pick up on what others might be feeling or thinking or their intentions. But when they looked at managers, they found that about 1% of them or a very small percentage were skilled in this way, in being very good socially. And so although we think we should pick the people who are the best at their jobs, when it comes to being a manager, we need to pick the best managers. Those are the best at leading and interacting with people. An interesting finding related to this that I, I kind of had observed and thought of before, but never seen it presented so clearly was, he says, uh, he cites research that finds that intelligence and empathy were negatively correlated with each other. So people who are more intelligent in the traditional ways are worse at things like empathy, understanding and feeling 
other people's emotions, which is really fascinating, something I've seen before. He also mentions that it seems that these two things, intellectual thinking and emotional social thinking, are in two different parts of the brain. So it seems that when you have one on, the other one is off, something that he calls a neural seesaw. And so it makes sense in some ways that people who are good at one aren't always so good at the other. And I've noticed this um, a lot of times in people. And sometimes people think, well, so-and-so went to Harvard, so they should be good at being in a relationship. But then we actually find they aren't very good at all. Or we know that it doesn't necessarily mean they will be good at it. Uh, another interesting aspect is in school. And what I'll do is actually, I have a few more points I want to make about the book. And it really was a fascinating book. So I'm going to talk a bit more about Social by Dr. Matthew Lieberman after the break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm talking about the book Social by Matthew Lieberman, Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. And as he pre presents throughout the book, we see that our brains are very much wired to help us in our social interactions and in being social. And it's really fascinating uh, the ways that we see the brain making sense of the social world, even to the extent that something called the default brain network, which they found that when the brain wasn't asked to do something, so they would ask people to do a task, for example, to think of some numbers or memorize some numbers. And then when they would stop doing it, they realized that there's parts of the brain that would get activated when it seemed like they had nothing to do. And they call this the default mode network because it seemed like this part of the brain that would be activated at default. But then they started to find that there was a huge overlap between social thinking and this default mode network, which made them realize that what's actually happening is that when the brain is not asked to do anything, we go back to thinking about social things, making sense of things, figuring out things. And even people whose this part of their brain gets more activated are better at doing things related to social, let's say social intelligence, if you want to call it that. So it seems like our brain is literally wired in a way that when it has nothing else to do or is not asked to do anything else, it is thinking about social things. And in a way, this makes sense when you see so much of our lives is related to social things. Obviously, social media, uh, people go online and are looking at pictures and looking at the lives of people that they will never meet or are not connected to at all. There does seem to be something that grabs us about social things that makes it hard for us to look away or hard for us not to be curious. And it seems like we have brains that are very much uh, created in a way that makes them good at talking about or thinking about social things and about focusing on those things. Now, uh, I was going to talk about school before the break, and he mentions how it's interesting how in school we kind of think of socializing as the enemy of learning, the way we traditionally think of learning. The kids are expected to come in and leave all the socializing at the door. Maybe they do it at lunch or recess or nutrition, whatever they call it, or after school. But when you come in, there's no room left for socializing. And we think that this is the way we're supposed to learn. And traditionally, this is how schools have been. They shouldn't be talking or looking at each other or making jokes because right now is the learning time. But as he puts it, there's lots of ways that social things can make us learn better. 
And so to make this kind of dichotomy that you either have to be learning or have to be social doesn't really make sense. For example, you've probably heard before when people say the best way to learn something is to teach it. And there is definitely, a, there's a lot of truth to that, not just in people's experiences, but the research has shown that. And I can speak from my own experience that getting to talk about the books or the topics I talk about in the show help me learn the things better. So I've experienced that my uh, firsthand myself. But what they actually found was they did a study where people were asked either to learn some material to take a test or to learn some material to teach someone else. Then, before even the person was to teach someone else, and I guess the other people were expecting the test, they gave both groups a test. So everyone got a test after that. So the people in the teaching group never actually got to teach because we can see that the process of teaching maybe helps you learn better, and I'm sure that it does have an effect. But what they actually found was even in that, that experiment where people were not even teaching or they never got the chance to actually teach, they still learned the material better than people who were asked to try to memorize the material. So just the aspect of having to teach to someone made people better at learning things. And it's probably or very possibly because of the social aspect, knowing you're going to be interacting with someone else and you're going to have that pressure to teach them um, makes it so that we get better at learning it or we learn it even better so he has a whole chapter dedicated to school and how the education system should consider thinking about social things more even uh, he, he talks about history and usually when we look at history it's all about the what what happened and how it happened and it's very much on that surface level about that who fought whom at which war and who won and then what happened what was the result and that's about it but there's very little about the why which really gets into the things that make us interested. What motivated this person? What was going on that led to this? What were the currents in the country that people were thinking? What did people think about what was going on that might have fueled this or made things harder to happen? Um, but we don't see that. And as he acknowledges, the why sometimes is harder to know because it's going to very much be um, influenced by bias and things that people are thinking. But at the same time, this is what makes things interesting. And as he puts it, if we looked at today's headlines, for example, if we talk about some issue that we're looking at, the way we see it now when we experience it, we see the why and we see the influences of different things going on. But in a hundred years when they write about it, if it's the way history is traditionally written, it's just going to be about what happened. So you'll miss a lot of this why that we find fascinating. And so if we introduce that into how we teach history, it's much more likely that students would be interested in learning uh, what's happening. Um, but he also talks about how we could have the teaching actually happen with students teaching, let's say, eighth graders teaching sixth graders, but also being taught by 10th graders for a portion of their time, and that this could be beneficial to learning. So he says that we should be very careful not to separate social and learning or think that when kids are socializing, it's somehow taking away from their learning, but that actually it can help them and facilitate that process to a, a strong degree. Um, you know, another thing that's interesting about being social and how important it is to us, it makes us understand things like social anxiety or things like the fear of public speaking a little bit better. Sometimes people can be puzzled that the fear of uh, public speaking is very often the number one fear and that people fear it even more than death. And uh, this led to Jerry Seinfeld to come up with the very funny joke that he puts in the book that, that he says that, well, if you go to a funeral and there's someone giving 
um, a eulogy and someone in the casket, people would prefer to be the person in the casket because they're afraid to, to speak in public more than actually to, to be dead. Um, but I think this points to how important it is for us to be accepted by the people around us because it was necessary for our survival. If you were not accepted by the group, if you were rejected, this would be possibly lead to your death, the thing that you're scared of. But you had to, to be aware of the social impact you were having and the way people saw you, your reputation. And this is why we feel things so strongly. And some of you think, why do I care so much what people think? Why do I care what a group of people or strangers think very often? People you'll never see again, people that'll never have any impact on your life. Well, I think also our brains were not equipped to deal with the size of groups that we deal with now. That's that's probably one aspect of it. So you did think that everyone who saw you, everyone who interacted with you would have an impact in your life. But also it shows that how important it is for us to um, care about what people think about us because it does have some impact on us. Now, even this idea of us or who am I, he has some interesting uh, points in the book about our sense of self. And he presents this interesting argument I really thought it was interesting. And I think it, maybe it doesn't paint the whole picture of the sense of self, but it just presents a fascinating idea. But the idea of the self as a Trojan self, meaning that our Trojan horse, meaning that the self is something that we tell ourselves we think we have, but it's a perfectly good way for us to get influenced by the group. Because we see that although people tend or want to think they're very individualistic or individuals and think on their own, we see that we are very much affected by the people around us. But if we think the idea is coming from within ourselves, it's myself that wants this or likes this, we're, we feel a lot better about it. And so in this way, the self is a perfect way for social things to come into us and then that we can be exactly what everyone else wants us to be or what's needed for the group to work in a way that uh, tricks us and makes us think it's coming from within. So I thought that was an interesting uh, point. And related to that, this idea of self and others and how we separate them, what does that really mean? And really sometimes even when I'm in my own head, other people are in my head. Uh, very often when we work with someone who, let's say, has social anxiety and thinks, well, I'm worried other people are going to think I'm stupid. What we usually want to look at is there is there part of you that thinks maybe you are stupid? Do you think this yourself? So we see that the way we think of other people and we think of ourselves, it's hard to sometimes understand where we end and other people begin. Where do my thoughts begin and yours end and vice versa? And maybe we aren't really as separate as we think. And this idea of purely individual selves is in some ways partially an illusion. So he has an interesting chapter on the, the sense of self and how, although we think of ourselves so individually, it might be that we're much more part of a group than we think. Now, he also talks about the mind-body issue and how we tend to think that I have a mind that is something separate from my body. So I can look at my physical body, but when I have thoughts or if I think things or feel things, or have emotions or ideas, we think of it as somehow separate from the body. Um, but as he points out, one reason this might be the case is that there's two separate parts in our brain, one that conceptualizes the self as the body and one conceptualizes ourselves as the mind or the thinking part. And so because of that, it can feel like really two different things or two different places. I really thought that was pretty fascinating. And then lastly, I wanted to talk about before we get to our next commercial break, um, when we talk about social and 
how important that is being social and being socially connected. He talks about how we tend to think in this world that money is going to make us happy, something that I've talked about many times on this show, even though the research shows us that up to a certain point, yes, you need money so that you're not living in stress and fear and concern, but that after that, once those basics are taken care of, more money is not going to make you happy. And even if we've made more money or people have more wealth over the past few decades, we see that people are not feeling better. Their overall well-being is not going up. So money does not buy happiness, even though people tend to think it does. And unfortunately, because of that, because we think it's money that buys us happiness, and actually we don't realize that it's connecting with others that is a very good predictor of our long-term happiness, we often trade connection to make more money. We'll work more and be with our family less. We'll take a job that's far away from friends and family because it pays us more because we think that's what's going to make us happy, but we don't realize that we're sacrificing something that's really priceless as far as happiness goes, which is that connection that we had. And even if we make more money, we're just going to have more money alone and probably be unhappy. So he has a, a chapter about that, that if we want to be happier, one of the best predictors of long-term happiness in our lives are the number of people that we are connected to. And it's not just quantity of friendship, something that I'd like to point out, because now with social media, sometimes someone can think, well, I have thousands of friends or followers online, so I'm connected to so many people, I should be very happy. But that's not the case. Those superficial connections and relationships don't go very far. It's really about the depth of the connections, the quality of those uh, connections and relationships. One question that always comes up in these types of studies is, how many people could you call if you really needed something, if you needed someone to count on? Or he talked about one in this book, how many people have you talked to about serious things that really matter in your life over the past few months? These are much better predictors of the quality of our social life, which does predict happiness. And I think this myth that having more money is going to make you happy and the more and more you get, the more and more happy you get, has become so ingrained in us that it's hard to really reconcile this. So you hear people that will say, okay, fine, yeah, money doesn't make people happy, give me your money then. If you don't think it's going to make you happy, I'll take all your money from you. And like I said, it's not about getting rid of all of it because you need some to survive, but it shows how deeply ingrained this idea is, even though all the research is showing us that it's not the case. So don't forget that, that what you need to make you happy isn't money. And what's going to make you happy is having good relationships with people that you care about and that care about you because it feels good to be cared for and it feels good to take care of others. But if you focus on money as your pursuit to happiness, you're going to unfortunately find that you'll maybe end up very rich, but not very happy. And so I think that was a great point that was made in this book, Social by Matthew Lieberman, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. We need to connect to others. It is a need with a capital N, just like food and water. And our brains are very much created to help us be social creatures. So I uh, really enjoyed that book. Hope you will read it if you haven't already. And again, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week is The Mask of Masculinity by Lewis Howes. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome 
back. Uh, for the last segment, I wanted to make a movie recommendation. Uh, a movie I saw last night. It's not like an action movie or anything like that. It would have been funny. I think if I said something, um, I maybe should have thought of something to say. But nonetheless, the movie I saw last night that I'd recommend is Won't You Be My Neighbor? A documentary about Fred Rogers, who uh, I remember as a kid watching his show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and really loved that show. And I remember liking it as a kid, but I don't remember how much I really was aware of how amazing of a man Fred Rogers is. And I definitely consider him one of my heroes. I've talked before about how I think we have to be careful about making people heroes because all people have uh, their flaws and no one is perfect. And sometimes when we make heroes, we put them on this pedestal that's unrealistic and we look at them in a way that maybe isn't um, realistic. But when it comes to someone like him, I definitely don't think he was perfect. I don't think anyone was, but it's the philosophy and the principles that I saw that he was standing by and that he promoted in his show and his life that I admire and I think are inspirational and worthy of trying to aspire towards. And so the movie itself was very, very interesting. Um, I was very into it the whole time. Uh, you, you follow him in his life uh, you know, and, and learn about him, and it was really interesting. So those who don't know, Fred Rogers, uh, he had the show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, where he would basically come in the door every show the same way and sing his song. But it was a kid's show. They would talk about a lot of different issues. But what was amazing about his show was that it was very different from TV in general, but especially kids' TV back then, which was filled with lots of bright colors and um, fast-moving things and loud sounds and even violence and aggression uh, and all of these things we think of as excitement, his show was really had none of that. It was very much stripped down. And you really did feel like you were connecting with him one-on-one. -on -one. And that's, in a lot of ways, what he was trying to do, was trying to connect with each child that he was, uh, that was watching the show one-on-one. -on -one. And in a way, he talked about that during the show. So I find him incredible because what he has done or what he did in his life was he made a huge impact and he was a leader, but he did it through love and kindness. He didn't uh, use, try to use power or aggression to make changes, but he used love. And even there's a very memorable scene where uh, and maybe you've seen this online already. I had seen it where he was speaking in front of Congress where they wanted to cut $20 million of funding to PBS, Public Broadcasting Service, where his show was on. And he talks there and he just speaks from the heart because actually he had like a 10-minute prepared speech, but the people were kind of sick of the speeches. So they asked if he could maybe not do that, if he, he would be okay with that. And he just shared from his heart what he thought was important about connecting to the kids and realizing that we can teach kids about being good and we can entertain them in ways that don't involve the ways that we think we have to entertain them. But in that moment, you see him connect with this individual and he's kind of like a hard-nosed politician who is playing kind of tough with other people that have come in to testify in this hearing. But you see him connect to this person just through love, through kindness, and showing him the value of what he wants to share. And I found that really amazing and that really touched me. And um, throughout the movie, you just see and you really feel the love that he has 
for people, but he has for children. What was actually very interesting was that he shared that when he was a kid, he had a lot of physical illnesses that left him bedridden and he had to be sometimes quarantined. He couldn't be around other people or other kids. And so he learned to make a make-believe land with himself. He would have, uh, he said, sometimes my knees under the blankets would become like mountains and then he would have animals and things going around. So he used that vivid, vivid imagination to really um, connect to himself, but to have fun when he really had nothing else to do, which was uh, really amazing. But it was interesting for me to see that. Also in his childhood, they talked about how he did get teased and bullied a little bit. And so he felt like that rejected kid. He felt like someone who was not accepted. And a lot of the messages he shared in his show was about saying things like, I like you just the way you are. You're fine just the way you are. Nothing about you needs to change. You are good as you are. And you can see that maybe in a lot of ways, of course, he was talking to all these kids, but he was talking to all these kids in a way that he probably wished someone had talked to him or that he had someone in his life to talk to him in that way, which I thought really fascinating to see a little bit. And maybe I was interested to see even more about his childhood and his development of how he became the man that he became, um, that these things definitely shaped who he was and the messages that he shared. So he shared a message of love and kindness and acceptance of people. Uh, also, I think really interestingly, the way he did things wasn't in your face. And sometimes we think when we're talking to anyone, but especially if we're talking to a kid, that we because we think maybe they don't understand, we have to make things so clear to them and explicit that this is now about racism, so pay attention. And he had a lot of shows where he talked about things explicitly, but something that he did was he had this scene where he was, uh, you know, had this small kind of pool and he's putting his feet in the water and this uh, the black police officer, someone who's on the show comes by and they're saying, oh, it's so hot. I have my, you know, I'm having my feet in the pool. Would you like to join me? And then there's this very, you know, uh, simple moment where the officer takes off his shoes and he also puts his feet in the water. And then he puts some of the water on his feet and they're just sitting there enjoying it. And it's just very simple. But this was huge because when you consider around that time, things like blacks being in swimming pools was not accepted. And people thought that even if uh, there was segregation of black and white pools, and if someone had been in the pool, there's even stories of them draining the pools, showing that there was so much intolerance. And in this very subtle way, he made it very clear that it, it's okay and there's no reason not to share this experience with someone or to think that someone else doesn't deserve to share this with you. And I got tears in my eyes in that part and a few other moments throughout the movie where he would just be so loving. For example, one time there was this girl and you could see she had some kind of developmental disability of some kind, but she had drawn a picture. But the way you see him looking at this child and really the way you saw him look at every child was with total love and acceptance. And it was so beautiful just to see that he would connect because you'd see that he wasn't just trying to talk to the child or listen to the words of the child, but he was trying to see the whole child as an individual. And this is something that, especially if you're working with kids but, uh, as parents even more, that when you listen to your child, when we say that, it doesn't just mean hear their words. It means 
take them in completely as a person? What are they saying through their actions and their behaviors, through what they're not saying and what they're not doing? And who are they really are? Try to connect to that and love that. Uh, I always try to say that your job as a parent isn't to make your kids become a certain way, but to love them as they are. Love who you have. You're given a seed and you can't choose what that seed will become, but your job is to make sure that seed is given the best environment to grow to all of its beauty and potential. You're not supposed to make them a certain way. And I very much felt that with Fred Rogers, the way he was interacting with these kids and the messages that he gave was all about making sure people felt loved and accepted. Now, there was an interesting part. They showed some footage from uh, people in the media more recently saying that, you know, things like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood has ruined a generation of children because it told people that everyone is special and everyone is unique. And so they're you know, worthy of just everything and they don't need to work hard or do anything. And to me, this is so backwards to what, to me, the message really is that he was sharing. Um, and the idea that when you tell people that they're okay as they are, and if you love them as they are, this makes them lazy or not work hard or feel entitled. I don't see that as, at all. And that's not at all how I understand human beings and how we interact and how we act when you actually tell someone they're loved as they are that they're okay exactly as they are what they feel is a feeling of worthiness of respect for themselves and of other people and a desire to bring out the best in themselves and everyone else they don't feel shame they don't feel embarrassed they don't feel like they have to conform to become something for other people they'll feel that i myself am okay as I am. I don't need to be someone else. But the idea that if you get this type of acceptance, you are going to then become complacent is not what we see. As Carl Rogers said, the curious paradox is that only when I accept myself as I am, then can I change. Only when I actually love myself as I am, can I become even better? Can I grow? So uh, I'm very much against the camp if there still is one, and I'm sure there actually is, who thinks the idea of letting kids feel from a very young age that they're loved and accepted as they are is somehow going to lead to less productivity and people working hard. I think that is so against what's going on. Because if we actually look at what happens, people waste so much physical, mental, emotional time and energy on things like shame. When you're ashamed of yourself, you're not going to bring out the best of yourself. You're going to be afraid to be yourself, afraid to show yourself. Um, you're not going to feel comfortable being you. And what we actually need in the world is for everyone to be the best version of themselves, not for anyone to feel bad about being a certain way or being born a certain way. And so that message that he shares throughout uh, his life, really, but you see throughout the movie, that we should love ourselves and each person is worthy of love and respect just for being who they are, I found really amazing. And also something that was really interesting about his show, as I mentioned before, is how in a way slow it was. Even one time he had a segment where he said, do you want to know how long a minute is? And then there was just a minute of silence as you saw the, the seconds going around the clock, but giving children an understanding of time. But so even though his show was so in a way, oh, it seems like sweet and nice, he was very courageous because he took risks that other people would not take. 
he would talk about topics that other people would probably avoid, especially when it came to talking to children like assassination and divorce and death, things that we probably think are too scary or taboo to talk about. He would have shows about these topics. And also he believed that if you really connect to someone, if you really have something to say of value and meaning, then you don't need to make things all shiny and sparkly and fast-paced and moving fast. You don't need to distract them because there's so much substance in what you are saying and what you're doing. And that way you, that's what you see in his show, this testament, that when you really connect to someone, that's going to engage them. You don't need to constantly try to keep them, quote-unquote, entertained. Being engaged is actually what we're all really looking for. And so I found that really interesting. And I was talking to a mom today uh, of a four-year-old, and she was saying how her child is having anger issues. And so she was doing yoga with him, that he was trying to do some yoga, but then also was teaching him breathing exercises to help him deal with his anger, to take some deep breaths. And I thought that's so great. Unfortunately, so often parents don't think these measures are the ways to go. We think of we have to come up with other types of solutions, but very often it's about helping the kid learn how to calm themselves down and taking the simple steps to feeling better. It's not always going to be something flashy. And Mr. Rogers embodied that. He was a loving man, a kind man that was trying to promote the ideals of love and kindness and acceptance and really loving everyone. And that's why he talked about, won't you be my neighbor? Really was an invitation to, won't you be really my friend? Won't we all be connected? Can't we all just love one another? And so I really hope you'll check out the documentary if you haven't already. Uh, it's playing in theaters now. Won't You Be My Neighbor? I saw it last night and thoroughly enjoyed it and was so um, happy to get to, to finally see it. I wanted to see it for a few weeks. So I hope you'll, you'll check that out and let me know if you do see it, your own thoughts on that or anything else, including the book from this past week. And I'll mention the book again for this week. The Mask of Masculinity by Lewis Howes, which I'll be talking about on next week's show, but I'll be with you this Wednesday at 12 noon. Um, and also um, wanted to just uh, thank everyone who's made recommendations for books or given books because I'm always looking for new books to add to the list. So if you have a book in mind that you think would be interesting for the show, please just send me a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Let me know what you have in mind, and I'll add it to the list of books to read. All right, we're reaching the end of tonight's show. Uh, thank you to Amir here in the studio as always. Thank you to everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.